Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, when asked about the difference between the U.S. messaging on Omicron and the Canadian response, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland's response left Canadians with more questions. What opportunities did the government miss and what should they have done? An industry group representing some of Canada's biggest automakers says Canada needs to build millions of charging stations as part of their EV planning. So without a charging network, what's going to happen? And due to the recent COVID restrictions, the government is temporarily expanding eligibility for two COVID-19 benefit programs to help those businesses. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber. He joins us to talk about it. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, as we mentioned, a number of government announcements, including uh, from the federal government, both the prime minister and the deputy prime minister, who was also the finance minister, Christy Freeland, uh, made public uh, statements about uh, what they wanted to see happen. And of course, there was a Q&A after that. And it seems to a lot of uh, observers that the uh, Trudeau government is pushing back at U.S. President Joe Biden's televised message from earlier this week, in which he uh, basically told them, okay, to gather for the holidays as long as you're vaccinated. And, uh, well, that's not really the message our government's giving right now. And uh, when uh, Minister Freeland was asked about that, well, she... Well, some, let's put it this way. They, it was an opportunity, I think, for a, a teaching lesson here. And instead, uh, she just seemed to waffle and, and, and get into this political rhetoric. Here's a little clip of what happened yesterday. We're a careful country. And I think that's a really good thing. And I think all of us need to be careful. I think we all know that. And I'm confident that we will be. And I am really confident that we're resilient and we'll get through this. Which doesn't really explain why the two different policies, does it? But anyway, uh, joining us to talk about this is Andrew Brander. Andrew, of course, is uh, Vice President of Crestview Strategy and a uh, longtime uh, political observer and uh, a confidant of uh, political politicians and folks up in Ottawa. Andrew, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Great to be here. Were you uh, instilled with confidence after the uh, the comments from Ottawa yesterday? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I think that would be a stretch. Um, look, you know, the, the, I, I, I think I was just as surprised as, uh, as, as a lot of people in terms of the, uh, the rhetoric that was uh, coming from the deputy prime minister. Um, I, I perhaps uh, would, would like to believe that, um, that she's just stuck in the mantra of sort of uh, a, a year ago um, when we were used to sort of parroting uh, this line where, you know, where we gladly stand up and say, whoa, whoa, we're, we're not the United States. And, and at that time, of course, that meant comparing us to the Trump administration. At that time, it meant comparing us to uh, their vaccine uptake. Um, and, and at that time, it, it, it was also uh, during, a, during a period where we believed um, that the vaccine efficacy um, was was the end point in this, right? And and now mm-hmm. we know, um, obviously, the majority of cases, at least here in on, Ontario now, um, are are being found uh, in in those who are double vaxxed, not because they're double vaxxed, but just because there's more of us who are double vaxxed, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 all that to say, um, you know, when when Canadians have been told something for that long. Um, and and have made immense sacrifices, um, just as the people in the United States um, have have done as well. Um, I, I I think those comments, you know, came came across a little 
they missed the mark a little bit in terms of uh, in terms of uh, a feeling of sort of compassion and understanding that you know Canadians are frustrated. Uh, they've sacrificed so much uh, over the past two years, and and when you're seeing uh, the United States, which has a 68 percent double vax rate um, compared to ours, which is uh, just under 80 percent uh, right now. Uh, and and you're seeing the different messages. I think you're left. Um, you know, I think Canadians are left sort of scratching their heads, saying, "Whoa, whoa, why do you know? Why do they get to spend Christmas with their families, and yet we're asked once again to make to make a sacrifice?" This is right into your wheelhouse. I mean, this is you know what you guys do at Crestview is, is, is political strategy and 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 you know advising people about not just the pro- the policy but the messaging of that policy, and and this is that where I think a lot of Canadians are getting frustrated right now. Uh, a lot of what Minister Freeland said yesterday uh, were the, basically the talking points that we heard last December, and and I I understand that you know they want to stay on message. I get that. But we know a lot more about the virus now. We know more, a lot more about how we attack the virus. And, and I, I'm the last one that's going to try to diminish the severity of what's happening here. This is a crisis. And we need to deal with it. But we've seen the way other countries have handled this over the last little while, Andrew. And they, instead of simply making blanket uh, policies that say, okay, everybody's going to have to do this, uh, they target specific areas. And they say, you know what, we, uh, outdoor arenas, you should be okay. Indoor arenas, we need to be careful about that. Instead of coming down heavily on everybody, I mean, uh, the people I've talked to over the last couple of days are more concerned about what's going to happen next, that, you know, there's going to be another announcement in another couple of weeks that we're going to be in the same kind of shutdown that we were last December. I hope to God that doesn't happen. But what we're looking for here is reassurance to say, you know what, we're studying the data. Uh, We're going to target this and make sure that we, you know, we do what needs to be done where it needs to be done instead of just telling everybody you got to suck it up again, because that's the message we've been getting for the last year. Yeah, well, and and that's exactly right. And I do think a little bit of... uh proactive encouragement might might go a little bit further than again coming coming in hard and saying uh, you know we need you to make to make additional sacrifices again and again and i think i mean i think here also um there there would have been to your earlier point an opportunity for them to 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 talk about the differences look uh you know i i think the pandemic has uh, really exposed um, an, an opportunity um, for there to be a little bit more social permission, if you will, um, to to talk about um, the, some of the challenges um, that uh, that that we take on in our institutions uh, when we embrace uh, our our very much cherished um, universal healthcare system program. Right. And 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 so, uh, you know, if if we're going to lean into that, I think some education around what that means in terms of uh, in terms of access, in terms of choices could be a very big positive for them to put forward. But um, those things come with with a sacrifice, obviously, as well. Um, You know, the HHR crisis here in Canada um, have has has left us at a point uh, where you, you know we have five million Canadians without a primary care provider. Um, these these healthcare professionals are choosing uh, to go practice in the United States um, time over you know time over time, and and the 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 problem here is is a real one. Now the Liberals made a commitment 
to uh, to address this during the campaign. They talked about the hiring of you know seventy five hundred new family doctors and nurse practitioners uh, over the next four years. Um, and and so you know this I think uh, could have been an announcement that that aligned nicely with that commitment and and talk to them about the fact that we're building a better healthcare system out of this so that we don't have to deal with these types of choices again in the future where uh, we're asking everyone to make a sacrifice because our system is just not equipped to be able to handle the surge like the United States uh, system is is able to um, and, and able to scale appropriately. But isn't that one of the, the, the key elements that any time a politician gets up in front of the microphone or the podium and talks about that is, is, is to, first of all, you have to relate to the audience. We get that. But, you know, I, and I'm not suggest cheerleading because, you know, that's, that's the, the other end of the spectrum. And I'm getting a little tired of that. And I think a lot of other people, too. You know, the prime minister again said yesterday that, you know, if we really hunker down, I think was the phrase he used, it's going to be better in the spring. Well, yeah, he also said if we, oh, no, if we hunker down on Thanksgiving, we'll have a better Christmas. Well, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, it's, it, uh, you know, I, we don't need the cheerleading at this stage. We need some hard evidence that you guys are understanding what's going on and you're pivoting and, and directing your resources where they need to be. And you're absolutely right. The resources are there. They've, they've kind of hinted at it. But this is an opportunity to say, you know what, we are, I, I hate to use the Biden phrase, but we're going to build back better and make sure that our healthcare care system is never going to get caught shorthanded like we were this time. You know, we're not going to throw PPE out because we don't think we need it anymore. We're going to have more nurses hired and everything. That, that, that's the kind of positive message that can, people can say, OK, all right, I, I can tolerate this for a little bit longer. Uh, but there's got to be some positivity to this. And I know one of the questions that was asked yesterday, I'm sure you saw that segment, was what have you learned over the last 12 months? And, and, and again, there was not a direct answer about that. There's a lot to be learned here. And, and what we're looking for here is leadership to say, this is what we do. We're not going to do what we did last December because we know this, 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 and that. And, you know, when they announce what are, are effectively the same policies and the same parameters as last December, you have to wonder if these guys have actually even been paying attention. It, it, well, precisely. I think uh, I think you know we're we're about to celebrate Christmas, but again, it feels it feels like Groundhog Day more and more every single yeah. time these types of announcements uh, come up. And 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 look, I mean, there is there is a significant amount um, again in terms of in terms of communicating on this uh, that that they could have pointed to. Um, it, to 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 sort of motivate people, I think you know all this all this constant talk about pandemic. It's easy for us to revert back into the pessimistic outlook that you that you just referred to. But I think these opportunities, um, in, instead of you know coming out and just talking about the bad things, uh, perhaps were was a missed opportunity for them to reflect on a year ago where we were. Vaccinations had just started a year ago. Um, a year ago today. I know it feels like a, a very long time ago, but December 11th, um, you know, last year were, were the first vaccinations. We were administering less than 5,000 a day. Only people in long-term care facilities, um, and of course they should have been prioritized, um, but only, only people in congregate settings were getting these vaccinations at that time because we were seeing dozens of deaths uh, a week. Uh, kids had been pulled out of school. No restaurants and gyms were open. 
people were, you know, people were fleeing to the suburbs just to just to sort of get a get a glimpse of Christmas shopping before everything closed in Boxing Day. Look, we're leaps and bounds ahead of where we were, uh, where we were last year. Um, so perhaps uh, the government missed an opportunity to sort of reflect on that, uh, take a bit of credit for that, but give credit um, more so to the people um, who who have made those sacrifices over the last year, who did everything that this government, in large part, has asked um, them to do, and and really acknowledged um, that that we are so much closer towards the end of this uh, than uh, than you know feeling like we are just being plunged right back into uh, into into the midst of it. And that could have been part of the messaging. I mean, you're absolutely right. Let's let's go back to January or February of this year. There were concerns about supply chain. You know, I know that they'd said they'd purchase more doses than anybody else in the world, but they weren't here. And, and you know, we thought, hey, are we even going to get enough vaccine here? There was a real concern about that. They seem to have their act together. And she sort of alluded to that yesterday when she said that, you know, they have the, the, the stuff in pile, the stockpiles of rapid tests and, and more to come, as she said. Now, mind you, getting those rapid tests out to the people that need them or want them is another story. But, you know, that's that's where you can talk about positive strategies about what they're doing. Well, uh, you know, exactly, we should be proud exactly. of the high vaccination rate. There's a lot of things that we should be proud of here. But, you know, are they preparing us? Uh, for what's going to be happening forward, because like the, the feedback I'm getting from an awful lot of people is, look, at, I'm doing everything they're asking. You know, I'm social distancing. I'm wearing the mask. I'm still working from home. I'm double vaccinated. I got my booster. Or I'm about to get my booster. And yet, look at the numbers every day. It's scary. The number of new cases. What's going on here? And, and yeah. what are you doing about it? Well, precisely, and 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 that's it. Which is, um, you know, people people need um, during during these types of times, uh, people need that motivation. Uh, they they don't need uh, more lectures, uh, especially after uh, they've they've come at at a time where exactly as you said, uh, you know, people have stepped up. People have. Uh, in large part, done uh, done everything that this government uh, has asked of them, which has been a lot, and and you know the the amount of sacrifices that have have just been made by people uh, across uh, across the country throughout this last year. So I I I really just think that uh, the the Biden administration really hit the nail on the head in terms of, in terms of tone, in terms of delivery. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, uh, the, the States has done, has done a significantly better job in terms of being able to, um, you know, at least create the conditions to, to, to be able to manage this thing going forward, um, uh, to, to be in a place where they're able to encourage fully vaccinated people, um, to to get together and and you know have a little bit of enjoyment after after what's been a very long almost two years now. But isn't that what Biden said? And and maybe what our Canadian public are waiting to hear is that hey, you know what, Andrew, you you've been a good citizen. You've done everything we've asked of you. Uh, so has your family. Congratulations to all of you. Uh, don't go crazy this Christmas. You know we, we don't want you you know renting a banquet hall for Christmas dinner. But if you want to have 10 or 15 people over to the house and they're all double vaccinated and they've been all following the protocol, knock yourself out. You know, it's not bulletproof, but, you know, and that seemed to be what Biden was saying. And maybe that's what they were hoping from Minister Freeland yesterday. And that's not what they got. 
that's that's not that's not what they got and that's not what they uh what they've they've ever heard from uh from from our government right uh they've they've heard everything you just said but it always comes with a but after it it's but we need you to do more we but we need to keep going we need to and 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 i think at this point yeah, you're hearing from callers i'm sure all day every day about how frustrated people are um, how uh, how they uh, you know everyone's everyone's tired and and I do think there is some acknowledgement of that uh, coming from the federal government um, and and here's my but at this time I think we we just need to I think I think there needs to be clear communication um, that that Canadians and and an acknowledgement that Canadians have stepped up and uh, and have done. Uh, what's uh, what's what's required of them, and uh, there there needs to be uh, something to look forward to if you're if you're going to um, continue to encourage people uh, in the new year um, to go out and get those third doses to go out and you know continuously um, you know stay on top of on top of testing and following uh, the the protocols so that. Uh, we can all be able to appreciate, um, the, you know, the the finer things in life, if you will. That's exactly. uh, that's what that's what those are now. Well, uh, enjoy the holidays, you and the family, uh, as best we can under the circumstances. Uh, it's been a great year, and always a pleasure having you on the program, Andrew, to talk about this, that, and the other thing. I know that uh, uh, just you know, Christmas is such a big thing for us and for family too, and I know you're probably equally concerned that whether or not our new England Patriots are going to get back on the ball this weekend after a pretty crappy performance last week. So uh, fingers you know, crossed for both know, of us and have a Merry Christmas. Certainly. Uh, certainly. We'll, we'll keep, uh, keep the fingers crossed on, uh, on that. Okay. Have a great holiday, Andrew. Uh, Thanks again. Have a great new year. Andrew Brander, vice president of Crestview strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 2021 is also going to be remembered as the year that uh, our governments, both Ontario and federal government, uh, made some very strong commitments to electronic vehicles moving forward, the production of them. And, uh, well, they'd like to convince us that this is the way we should be going. As a matter of fact, they've even set some pretty hard deadlines as to when uh, they want to move into this. By 2030, they figure that uh, most of us should be driving EVs. However, uh, there are some uh, hurdles to overcome. The International Energy Agency says demand for critical minerals is going to grow six-fold in the next 20 years as growth in electronic vehicles and renewable energy creates an insatiable demand for rechargeable batteries and the critical minerals that make them work. Now, we have some of those minerals here in Ontario, but the question a lot of consumers have right now is how are we going to build the batteries, and more importantly, how are we going to charge them if we're driving an EV? Well, uh, Mia Robson has some details for us. Canada produces more than two dozen minerals listed as critical supplies for the transition to a net-zero economy. It wants to use that strength to become a crucial player in electric vehicle supply chains. But that goal is running up against dominance from China and concerns Canada's minerals cost more because of higher wages and environmental standards. Mining Association of Canada President Pierre Gratton says Canada's position as a leader on critical minerals has slipped in recent years. He's hoping the Liberals will soon make good on an election promise to double a tax credit encouraging mineral exploration and invest more in processing. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Well, what's uh, 
that's weird from the, the partners, the people that are actually going to be building these cars, because they've been on side too, and they've been driving uh, this agenda for some time now, to their credit. Uh, but they've got some concerns. Brian Kingston is the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. So, Brian, welcome to the program. Nice to have you with us today. Morning. Thanks for having me on. That's the question I get more than anybody else when we start talking about this, and we bring politicians on and others about EVs, and, and that's the future. And I think everybody seems to be pretty much on side with that. But here in Canada, Brian, everybody's asking, well, how do you charge these things? You know, we drive a lot in this country, and we drive, you know, between here and the cottage or there and that or go to visit relatives in Ottawa, whatever the case might be. It's, it's different than it is in many other parts of the world right now. And there's a lot of concern that if there are no charging stations, then why should I even get an EV? Exactly. Uh, this is the key issue that comes up consistently. We survey Canadians regularly and consumers about EVs and what some of the barriers are to making that switch to an electric vehicle. And two things come up every time. First is the higher price of an EV. They still are more expensive. The technology is developing, but a battery is more expensive compared to a traditional gas-powered vehicle. So that's an issue. And the second one is charging. Uh, and Canada has some very uh, unique charging requirements. We have 1.1 million kilometers of public two-lane roads. Uh, not many countries have a road network of that size. We have 20% of the population that lives in rural areas. And on top of that, we have cold weather, which does impact battery operations. So we need to build out a comprehensive, highly accessible charging network that's really second to none if we're going to help Canadians make that switch. And, and therein lies part of the problem. And I'm glad you brought up the cold weather because I know that years ago, when, well, I guess we're talking Elon Musk initially, but uh, everybody else and your, your guys are all on side with this now too, with the construction and, and design of these things. Uh, but the battery was always a problem. And I, I always tell the story of a good friend of mine uh, who was in downtown Toronto, right by the waterfront and, at a meeting uh, by the convention center, had to drive back to his house, which is up near the uh, Oak Ridge's Moraine, just near Highway 9. And it was about, it was January, it was about minus 15, minus 20 outside. And he started losing battery power because it was so damn cold. And he says, it was like I was in Apollo 13. You know, I had to turn this down, shut this off to try to save battery life. Uh, he made it. Oh, that's the happy ending to the story. I know the technology's better, but boy, it, you know, the lack of charging stations here is a real concern. Uh, and, and the battery life is a real concern here in Canada. This is not Southern California where they did a lot of these testing. Exactly. And that and that's what worries us about the, the targets that government has set with respect to building charging infrastructure. The batteries are getting better. The life is getting better. The cold weather operation, the technology is advancing extremely rapidly. So over the next decade, you're going to see battery performance uh, continue to improve. However, we still do have this broad and vast road network in Canada and the cold weather issue will continue to play a factor. So we can't look at ratios of chargers to EVs that you would perhaps use in Southern California uh, or other warm weather places, particularly countries where you have uh, density around one or two major urban centers. We're, our population is strung out along the Canada-US border and people do tend to make longer drives. So we have to make sure that we take those factors into account and plan for a charging network that's going to ensure everyone can conveniently charge because we've seen examples in other countries of people making the move to an electric vehicle. They encounter charging challenges like the, the situation that your friend went through or, or they get to a charging station and there's 25 cars in a line in front. 
you go through one or two experiences like that, and you're more likely to say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm going back to a gas-powered vehicle. That is a very bad outcome for everybody. If we can get people to make the switch, we want it to be convenient, and we want them to stay with an electric vehicle. So the network is key to making that happen. Brian, you've been in the biz a long time, and, and you know about dealing with consumers. And the, I think the mantra here, and whether you're talking about people moving people into public transit or into EVs, whatever the case might be, is you have to offer them two things. Uh, first of all, it's got to be affordable, and you're right that they need to work on that. And it has to be convenient. And if if you don't hit those two marks, people are just not going to buy into it, are they? That's exactly it. And I, I would add another factor as well, which is the vehicles need to fit someone's lifestyle. Canadians... Yeah tend to like larger vehicles because you're taking the kids to hockey, you're doing long drives on the highway in the winter. So when you look at what sells in Canada and North America more broadly, it's it's larger SUVs and pickup trucks. So mm-hmm. we've got to make sure that those vehicles, and those are coming, for General Motors and Stellantis are electrifying their full range of vehicles, including larger vehicles. So you're going to see those coming into the market. But to your point around affordability, in the early years, they will be more expensive because the battery is quite sizable. So we need to work yeah. on that. And there are government incentives in place, but you, you have to help consumers make that switch if you want to get to the targets that government set out, which is 100% zero emission vehicle sales by 2035. And when I get to convenience, uh, th- there's another element to this too. Is, is time is important to us? Uh, you know, here in southern Ontario, I mean, you know, you want to go up to Collingwood to ski for the weekend. It's a, it's about a two-hour drive up to Blue Mountain. Fabulous, nice, picturesque drive. But if I as, I, as a motorist, have to stop and, and for another hour someplace along the way there to charge my car, I figure it's this is ridiculous. This is this is not worth it. Uh, you know, how fast are, can you charge these things and how convenient can be? I know you guys have done some work on this and some research uh, ratios about how many charging stations per electric vehicle out there. And we're nowhere near where we should be, are we? No, we're, we're not even close. And you're right. Convenience is key. And, and that's why we put a lot of emphasis on what's called DC fast charging. So when you're out on the highway, you're on a long road trip. Most of these new vehicles now will have ranges of well over 300 kilometers. So you can go quite a fair distance. But if your trip is longer than that and you need to stop and fill up, the the best way to do that is at a DC fast charging station where you can get a very, very powerful uh, electrical current and you can almost fill the battery um, to a full charge, You know, definitely within an hour and sometimes within a half hour. And again, the technology is advancing there quite quickly. Those stations are critical in these early years because you've got to give Canadians and consumers the confidence that when they go on that trip, that will be available to them. And right now, government's planning in total 50,000. This is what they uh, committed to in in the last election, 50,000 EV charging public chargers uh, across the country. I compare that to what California is trying to do. They're estimating they need 1.2 million charging outlets available by 2030 to support a fleet of seven and a half million electric vehicles. So if California thinks they need that many, I am having a hard time understanding why our ambitions are are so much less because with all of the factors that we've already gone over, the larger country, the rural population, we're going to need a lot more. So that's that's you know what we're calling on government is let's come up with an ambitious plan here. If we're going to track the sales to 50% by 2030 and 100 to 2035, we should have a corresponding target and ratio for charging stations. 
Yeah, and I know the one that they were looking at, and I guess kind of the the, the standard they're looking at here is a uh, uh, one charger for every twenty EVs by twenty twenty five. Now that doesn't to your example about oh you don't want twenty cars ahead of you. They're not all going to charge at the same time, but if that ratio is there, chances are that that you're going to have a quick charge someplace. You know, it, it, depending on where you are, uh, and and that's I think what we need to shoot for right now. In your discussions, though, with the government, and I, I think we're all glad that the government's finally jumped on board here, and they're, they're funding this, and they understand that this is where we need to go. Uh, and I know some of them kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into it, but they're on side now, and that's what's important. But do they understand what needs to be done here? In other words, that, that this is the, the discussion you and I are having right now is about the infrastructure that's needed, not just the, the vehicles themselves? Yeah, I you know there there is work being done uh, at the federal government level around um, what needs to be built out to make this shift happen. My concern is that it's not being done with enough urgency, and it's not being done in a in a really public and transparent form. If I look at other countries or jurisdictions where they've had higher levels of ZEV sales at an earlier and faster pace than Canada. There's been a really, really um, comprehensive approach involving all stakeholders to get behind this target and to come up with a plan to get there. Whereas in Canada, we've set the target and now I feel as though we're working backwards. Okay, how do we achieve it? And that's not the way to do this because it's not just about the charging infrastructure. We also have to be having conversations around electricity generation. Canada has a very clean grid, which is why moving to EVs will be really powerful and reduce our GHG emissions. But you know, we're looking at estimates that by 2050, we're gonna have to increase our grid capacity by 23% for EV consumption alone. And you know, that's a big, that's a big build. We've, that means we need to build more hydroelectric dams or we have to bring on more nuclear capacity. And those projects take time. You can't do that in a matter of years. You've got to start the planning now. So I'd like to see a more comprehensive discussion with government as the lead with everybody involved, provinces, municipalities, charging companies, auto manufacturers on how we actually get to 2035. Well, and I, I feel your pain here because the problem we always have here is governments tend to be reactive as opposed to proactive oftentimes. And and I'd like to think that they're laying the groundwork for this stuff. So when you guys start rolling these vehicles out uh, and, and your members, I mean, you know, Ford and, and, and well, Stellaris and, of course, uh, GM, that you can say, okay, go ahead and buy these things because we've got everything in place for you. This is going to be an easy transition for you. And, and you're right. We're not there yet. And the government's got to understand that, that they've got a lot of work to do. Uh, While well, you guys are doing the work, the prototypes and getting everything ready here. And, and of course, you know, a lot of your partners have already, uh, they're already in the game here with some of the stuff they've developed and there's more to come. You know, you, you're right. I mean, Canada, we like bigger vehicles. I drive an SUV. My, my, I've got a nephew who drives a, a Ford F-110. It's going to be an electric vehicle pretty soon. He's, he's great about that. That's fine. So, they, you, you know, you're doing your part. You're, you're reading the market. You're supplying what needs to be done here. Uh, but the government's got to step up here to make sure that when we're ready to do that, when I'm ready to walk onto the lot and go and buy that EV, that I'm confident that I'm going to be able to go from point A to point B and I'm not going to have any hassles. That's exactly it. This is a transformation for the way that we drive and and for consumers. And the industry is moving now quickly. My three members alone are investing $100 billion into electrification technology between now and 2025. Massive investments as we transition uh, a supply chain which was fundamentally based on the internal combustion engine to a whole new supply chain driven by critical minerals batteries and ultimately evs so we're all in and we're heading in this direction but we've got to make sure that government's doing its work 
to in, ensure that a consumer, when they make that purchase, they can be confident that this vehicle is going to meet all of their needs and be convenient. So it's this is happening, but we've got to put the planning in place because this is really, really important. And the timelines, while 2035 sounds far off, it's not that far off. Uh, it's going to come very quickly. And just to give you a sense of where we're at right now, we're currently only at 4% in terms of zero emission vehicles as a proportion of total vehicle registration. So we got to go from 4% to 50 in eight years, and then on to 100 in five more years after that. That is a, it's an aggressive timeline. I think we can do it, but we're going to have to have a much more thought out plan in place to make it happen. In a related issue, I only got a minute or two left here. Uh, are you concerned about the Buy America stuff and the impact it might have on the Canadian industry? I know, I know negotiations are on. We had the Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan on the program the other day. And uh, he's had some pretty serious negotiations with Washington, as have uh, the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister, I guess. Uh, we've always found middle ground in the past. Are you confident that we can do it again? I think so. I think we can. I mean, this this industry, the reason it is so successful and competitive is because we have a highly integrated North American auto industry that was enabled by NAFTA and now the USMCA, the new trade agreement. And that's what enables this, this movement of products across the border with extreme efficiency between Canada, Mexico and the United States. And as we make this transition from gas powered vehicles to uh, to electric vehicles, a competitive supply chain is going to be all the more important. So uh, while it's no doubt concerning, given the manufacturing commitments that have been made here in Canada to build electric vehicles, uh, I think we will find uh, a middle ground. And, and there is still a lot, a lot of runway left on that bill. I mean, we saw just over last uh, last weekend that there were uh, <laughs> some some disagreement from the Democrats on, on elements of it. So there's going to be opportunities to work with the Americans, and I'm confident we'll find a solution. Well, and because the reality is, as you well know, and I think we've talked about this on the show a number of times now, a vehicle that's being produced in Oakville or in, in Oshawa, it's 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 American too. I mean, you know, back and forth, the auto parts and the, and the work that goes into these vehicles, uh, there is no border when it comes to the auto industry. They, they go back and forth all the time. And I know the previous administration realized that. They, and Joe Biden was part of that Obama administration that basically said, yeah, you're right. If, if part of it's being done, that that's a pass. That works too. So I, I'm I'm confident as well i hope so anyway sooner than later that they're going to just say yeah let's just move on from this and you know there's there's a political reason i get that and i think we all do uh why they do the buy america because it sounds great you know that hey we're going to protect your jobs but uh you know if if the canadian element of the auto pact is not going to be there a lot of american jobs are going to be threatened too well, exactly. And and to your point, there really is no such thing as an American vehicle, a Canadian vehicle or a Mexican vehicle. There is so much North American content in any vehicle that rolls off the assembly line in any of those three countries. It really is a North American built vehicle, just given the interconnectedness uh, of, of the industry. And I just add one other thing, you know, Canada does have a really interesting opportunity on the critical mineral side. And I know at the top of the show, you uh, you mentioned this, but it's really important. And I think it's a, it's a key point. And I know government's been raising it with, uh, with the US administration. There is going to be phenomenal demand for critical minerals in the coming years. And we just happen to have a massive endowment of many of these minerals, which are necessary for electric vehicles. So with the right investments now, I think we can make the case that we can be a secure supplier of critical minerals right from mining through to processing and ultimately into the battery. And I, I think that will make us uh, an invaluable partner to the Americans as this switch takes place. 
Absolutely. Well, here's hoping that 2022 is going to be a much better year for the industry, and uh, this is going to be a key part of it. Brian, thanks for the time. Really appreciate your input. Uh, have a great Christmas, and uh, best of all, good luck uh, and, and everything else for the new year. We'll talk again soon. Same to you. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Brian Kingston, who is the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yet another wave of COVID, another variant, uh, and more restrictions uh, being placed on businesses and on individuals, certainly, as a a result of that. And uh, you may recall that Parliament passed the new Canada worker lockdown benefit last week, but uh, with no part of the country actually officially in lockdown, those benefits were mostly out of reach. Well, yesterday, Deputy Prime Minister Christy Freeland says there's new rules, and that should fix that. These expanded federal support measures will ensure that provinces and public health authorities across the country can continue to make the right difficult decisions they need to make to save lives, confident in the knowledge that the federal government will be there to financially support workers and businesses as we finish this fight. Well, and this is done in concert with some issues uh, that were announced also by the provincial government. But uh, the question uh, we're hearing from an awful lot of businesses, uh, is is this enough? Some of them suggesting this is like a day late and a dollar short uh, for what they're really looking at here and some of the challenges. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, As always, Rocco, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Well, and my thanks to you, Bill, for always shining a, a light on the plight of small business in the country. Well, the stuff I heard, and and I felt the same way, uh, is this is this is a, an effort by the provincial and federal governments to try to do something, but it doesn't really address the needs. I mean, let's let's talk about first of all the business end of this because that's you know the element that the people your partners or your members are going to be talking about right now uh they're talking about things like rebates and things of this nature that's not really hitting the nail on the head is it look at at this time particularly after uh 21 months of various kinds of of lockdowns um complicated application processes that uh, you know don't begin until the middle of uh of January um, while while helpful, uh, to your point, uh, never has the term uh, "cash is king" uh, been more uh, important than than right now. In in normal times, um, for a number of sectors, particularly the hospitality and small retailers, these few weeks are the make or break time of the year. Uh, and this is where they make the money to then uh, make it through the leaner times uh, of, uh, of the winter and, and early spring. And so while the rebates are welcome, while the expansion of the rent and wage subsidy are most definitely uh, welcome, uh, deferring taxes, um, which was a good tool in the early days of the pandemic, when we were all hopeful that this was going to be short-lived, this late into the pandemic is not that helpful um, because that deferral is not going to suddenly give me back my Christmas sales, is not going to make those Christmas parties return in March or the New Year's Eve parties in April. Uh, And so we, we need... Uh, the, these sectors desperately need 
cash. They need it right away. They need it anytime government believes it has to introduce new restrictions. Because make no mistake, business hates having to ask for supports. We don't get into business to survive on government supports. We get into business because we're proud of the good and service that we have. We're proud of our teams, of our employees, and, and we want to make a difference in our community. But when government decides through no fault of, of the businesses that, that they need to take one for, for the team because of a public health emergency, then they have to fulfill their commitment that all levels of government have made that we've got your back. When you look at the Ontario program here, we'll talk about that and focus on that for just a second. Uh, what they're talking about doing now is 50% of the property taxes and energy costs of eligible businesses. Uh, while they're affected by public health restrictions, such as we're under right now, uh, restaurants, salons, uh, other indoor settings at 50%. Uh, you got to pay that bill, first of all, don't you, Rock? And, and, and then you, you show the bill to the province, they process it. And I guess evaluate it. Uh, so even if this program doesn't start till mid-January, Mr. Bethan Falvey says that's really when it is going to start. Uh, it could be weeks, months before you start seeing some of that money back. They say it's going to happen quickly. Uh, you've been around this game for a long time. Not nothing in government happens quickly. I mean, that's that's a, a great promise, but it doesn't always work that way. And the the small businesses I've talked to, and I'm sure you hear from these people, is they need help yesterday, not three months from now. A hundred percent. And that's why, uh, to, to give them some uh, credit, they've added um, the, the deferrals on other uh, things. So you don't have to make those other payments. You can use that cash flow in the interim until, until the rebates happen. But the reality is, even before these restrictions, uh, business has been way down in many sectors, particularly you look in the in the downtown cores of most cities, whether it's Hamilton, London, Toronto, Ottawa, Kitchener, uh, and the big employers still have most of their employees working from home. So the foot traffic hasn't been um, been there. And, and so it's not like these deferred taxes are sitting in someone's bank account somewhere. They've been using that money to survive. Um, and and you're you're bang on. Um, they need money yesterday um, to to deal with their ongoing bills and to and to stay afloat to the other side. It would be such a tragedy, um, given that we've we've asked all of these groups to basically tread water for 21 months, and we can see the shore. Uh, to have them drown five meters from shore would just be tragic and and stupid. Talk, the, the deferral thing is, is a very contentious point. Uh, and, and I know the government thinks, look, look this, is, this is what we can do. We're offering short-term relief. And, and I, you and I talked about this when they initiated this program. I guess it was about 20 months ago now. And although we're crazy about it, you thought, okay, in the short term, this this can work. It's it's going to be a bit of a pain for businesses, but you know, we didn't think this was going to last as long as it did. As you said, we're into twenty two months now, and and these guys are swimming in red ink right now. In other words, that little inconvenience has turned into a major problem. The the reality that these businesses are facing right now at Rocco is, I got to pay that bill sometime, whether it's you know January or whether it's March or April or whatever. The government wants that money, and I'm not making any money in my business, so how the hell am I ever going to pay the bill? It is effectively debt on the balance sheet. 
Um, and it has accumulated tremendously over the last uh, 21 months. And you're absolutely right, Bill. Businesses are now being for, fa- forced to face uh, the hard math of, will I ever be able to pay it back? When would I be able to start earning a living um, again and, and pay my own personal expenses on top of everything else? And at a certain point, they just hand over the keys and they're done. And quite literally, tens of thousands of businesses in Ontario alone over the course of the pandemic have already shuttered their doors permanently. Uh, And many more are hanging on by their fingernails. There is no gas left in the tank. And that's why it's so important um, to be quick, to be simple. They don't need to be filling out new application forms um, and and cash on the barrel head. And that's why it was interesting. Manitoba's government decided to go a different way and do a new round of small business grants uh, directed to the hardest hit sectors. Because the, the other reality is, look, not everyone has suffered, at least financially, in, this, in the same way. If you've been in technology and finance and most of the essential services, you've done very well, thank you very much. I mean, the TSX is up 20% uh, year, over, uh, year over year. But if you are a small business, if you've been in tourism, in hospitality, in live music, um, in personal services, in gyms, you've been, you know, kicked in the gut from the beginning, and you are the last to come out of this. Their answer to this, of course, is they're providing six-month interest-free and penalty-free period. Uh, if you owe forty thousand dollars in taxes, it's it's wonderful that okay, I don't have to pay interest on that, but I still owe them forty thousand dollars. They're missing the point there. It's 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 that big lump sum. Uh, and you talked about this from day one, Rocco, that, you know, it may be a bitter pill for these guys to swallow, but they're going to have to start considering loan forgiveness or they're just going to start losing businesses. Well, you're absolutely right, Bill. I mean, one of three things happen when those loans ultimately get called, right? One, they decide, as they've done today, I mean, it's a favor to both them and to the business because they know if they call it today, they probably don't have the money to pay it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a relatively easy give. Uh, you're going to then kick the can further down the road, or to your point, you're going to decide some or all of this has to be written down. Or three, this is when you're going to see the real waves of bankruptcies start to happen. If they haven't already. I mean, we've already seen some stores closed up, and uh, you wonder whether or not they're going to reopen right now. Uh, and, and it's a rather chilling forecast, but I remember talking to a couple of economists back about a year or so ago, and they said, look, if, uh, if you don't own your building and you're in small business, uh, you're, you're pretty much screwed uh, because that rent's still going to be due. The landlord's going to want the rent. The government's still going to want their taxes. Nobody's really doing you any favors. They're just saying you can pay me next week instead of today. <laughs> There's no guarantee you're going to have the money next week. Yeah, I mean, that's why you know, the rebates are, are cash. It's later, it takes a process, uh, but the deferrals can kind of get you there to that amount. The wage and rent subsidies can help. But our, our fear to how you set up the whole uh, segment, you know, um, more than a, than a dollar and a day late. 
Well, and, and that's the business aspect of this, and the, even the personal aspect. I know the Minister Freeland talked about that yesterday, and uh, they want to expand uh, the, the qualifications for this, but it's 300 bucks. Uh, and again, I, I don't know what they're expecting people to do with 300 bucks. I mean, when they started these programs uh, almost 22 months ago right now, it was 500 and uh, and even then there were some concerns about whether or not that was going to be enough. But that's for people that aren't having any income at all and they can pay the bills. Uh, the cost of living hasn't gone down uh, that considerably over the last 24 months that, you know, we can get by on 300 now. Uh, they're going to have to rethink this. I mean, I, I keep your eye on the ball. The, the, you know, it's supposed to be on relief here, Rocco. Not, yeah, I know there's a lot of hue and cry right now about the debt that every government's starting to pile up right now. And that should be a concern to us. I get that. But at what cost? Are we going to start saying, okay, we're going to give you less help right now because we're kind of worried about our financial situation too? Look, when you're falling from the sky, no one should be questioning the price of the parachute. Right? Yeah. And that's exactly where it is. And, and, and government is in the schizophrenic stage where they, like the rest of us, want to think that COVID is in the rearview mirror. But then they take actions that demonstrate that they don't believe that's the case. So you can't do what has been done, which is basically a wind down of all of these programs. Uh, and, and, and when you, if you have time to write new restrictions, you have time to, and an obligation to write new checks, period, full stop. This is one of the frustrations I have. I have with, with government, and you and I have both been, you know, around this this whole thing for a long, long time, and and they're all guilty of it. Uh, the federal government, all the provincial governments, including Ontario's, is they give these arbitrary dates to say this is when this program is going to end. Uh, they don't know that. It, it, the hard answer, and it may not be the most palatable one, but the realistic answer is the program will end when we don't need it anymore. And and we've never hit that stage yet, have we, Rocco? Um, you know, by their very actions, they've told us we haven't hit that stage. So they have yeah. to back up uh, that action with the other appropriate actions. Again, they've all said, and to a large extent, let's 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 be let's be fair. There have been lots of supports along the way, but mm -hmm. but it's been, you know, um, it's been problematic in this last little while. Clearly, COVID's not done with us yet. We're hopeful, uh, you know, on, on Omicron that, yes, transmissible, but no, not going to be leading to massive spikes in hospitalizations and, and deaths. So, you know, we're closer to the end than the, than the beginning. But again, if they're instituting restrictions, whether it's on travel, whether it's on capacity, whether it's on hours, they are therefore restricting the ability of of people to to earn a living, put food on the table, and and a roof over the heads of themselves and their children. And that is something. If if that's not the moment of of the insurance policy we call society, uh, I don't know what is. Well, hopefully the message gets through to them eventually. Uh, always a pleasure, Rocco, to get your perspective on this. And uh, thank you, not just for today, but uh, for your contributions over the last uh, couple of years on this, too. Get some downtime. Uh, enjoy Christmas with uh, the family. And uh, we'll talk, hopefully, about some positive news uh, in the uh, early days of 2022. Thanks very much. And all of your listeners can give the greatest Christmas present of all time, and that is 
buy local. This isn't just about government supports. All of us as consumers, to the extent that we're able, now is the time to double down and and help those local businesses. Amen to that. Thanks again, Rocco. Take care. Cheers. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.